But anyway, I um, wanted to talk to you today about every Christian's battle. We're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Every Christian's battle. Let's pray. Father, I am so grateful to have the opportunity to share your word with your people today. I pray, Lord, that uh, you would minister grace to the hearers, Lord, that you would uh, anoint my head with oil and let my cup run over. I pray that you would remove hindrances and distractions, anything that would keep us from receiving what you have for us personally, Lord. We pray that in the midst, Jesus will be glorified. And we thank you and praise you because we know that you are faithful to do it. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, this is a familiar passage of scripture where we will see as we study the text that Jesus was led uh, by the spirit to be tempted of the devil. Now, there and, and he is every Christian's battle. And so I um, acknowledge that some of you in here may not necessarily be Christians or may not necessarily be walking with the Lord. And that's okay because there will be some things that are applicable to you as we uh, go through the message, and the scripture even says that the guide, the God of this world, speaking of Satan, has blinded the eyes of those who do not believe. And so whether you believe or you're at a place where I acknowledge the existence of God, I'm just not ready to surrender my life to him, or you don't believe altogether, you're here because you were brought by a girlfriend, a spouse, or a parent, um, there is something in here for you, and so I want to encourage you to open your heart to what God and the Word of God has to say to you. Now, there are several approaches that people take when it comes to the devil and spiritual warfare. There are those who are um, hyper-spiritual that they find a devil in every corner and every rock, and everything is, the devil made me do it, or you have a devil or you have a spirit of this, or you have a spirit of that, and everything is demonic. And uh, that um, while sometimes that can be true, that is not necessarily always true. And there are those who swing all the way over to the other side and say, well, life just happens. There is no devil. It's just life just happens. And so one of the things that uh, is important for us as we uh, explore this subject today, that we understand that we need to um, approach this in a balanced way. That's why Peter said, be sober and vigilant because your adversary, the devil. And so be sober-minded about this. And so we, if we concede that there is good, we are also conceding that there is evil. And if we concede that there is a God, we also must concede that there is also a devil. And so let me share uh, some general things that the word of God says about Satan, about the devil. Uh, number one, uh, the scripture teaches us that he is persistent. Uh, Luke's account of, of this 
narrative tells us in Luke chapter 4, verse 13, that after he had ended his temptation, he left him for a season, or he left him for a while, meaning that uh, he stopped tainting him, but uh, as Arnold Schwarzenegger put it so succinctly, I'll be back. <laughs> so uh, he is persistent in trying to get us to uh, sabotage our faith and trying to get us to deny our faith and trying to distract us from the things that God has for us. Uh, James chapter 4, uh, verse God, tells us that we are to submit ourselves, therefore, unto God and resist the devil. And so we are to resist his attacks. We are to resist uh, his temptations by submitting ourselves unto God. Uh, in contrast, when the Bible talks about uh, the works of the flesh, it says that we are to flee youthful lust. And so we uh, flee away from things that our human nature may be prone to do, and we resist uh, the devil. And so we are not to underestimate him. The Bible teaches us that he disguises himself as an angel of light, that he can even come in the form of an angel of God. He disguises himself as an angel of light. Um, uh, John chapter 8, verse 44, tells us that he is a liar and the father of all lies. And so uh, that verse alone should give us pause about telling any lie. That verse alone, thinking about the fact that the devil is a liar and the father of lies, should um, give us pause about speaking the truth. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11 teaches us that he is a deceiver. Uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 5, teaches us that he is a tempter, that uh, as we will see here in these verses, that he is a tempter, that he comes to tempt us, he comes to seduce us, he comes to distract us, he comes to sabotage the work that God wants to do in our lives. Uh, uh, Jesus said that he comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And so when we have to be aware of these things. Now, let me say something up front because um, when, we, when I spoke earlier and said that if we uh, concede that God exists, we also must concede that the devil exists, I don't want to put us under the impression that they are equal. Because God is God and a Satan is a fallen angel, so they are not on the same level. However, that's what caused him, caused him to fall because he wanted to be like God. He wanted to uh, usurp the throne of God, but they are not equal. He is a fallen angel. And so he will try to attack our lives in every area. Now, I would like to uh, break up this attack into three areas because in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, the Bible says, Do not love the world, nor the things that are in the world, for everything that is in the world is not of the Father. If anyone loves the world, the love of God is not in him. For everything that is in the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life 
does not come from God, but from the world. And so we will see here how when Satan tempted Jesus, he tempted him in those three areas, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. Every and any temptation that we will ever experience will fall under one of those three categories. Uh, having said all that, let's begin uh, reading in verse number one. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And so we see here that Jesus is being tempted by the devil. The book of Hebrews does us the favor of letting us know that he was tempted at all points yet without sin, meaning that he was tempted in every area and did not sin. Warfare is a normal part of the Christian life. There are times we are being led into a season of seeking God in isolation, and because we are in seasons of seeking God in isolation, this can cause us to battle with the enemy or with circumstances or even with our own humanity. And have you, have you found that uh, there, at times when you make a decision to get closer to God, it's almost like obstacles are thrown in the way? Have you found that every time you say, you know what, I am going to set my clock uh, early in the morning because I am going to start praying and reading my Bible consistently, you start battling with insomnia. All of a sudden, the neighbor wants to cut his lawn at 2 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> Just coincidence. And so we have to understand that when we enter into these seasons of, of seeking God and we make good decisions for the kingdom of God, that the enemy of our souls will not be happy and will try to sabotage us from our relationship with God. Matthew said he was led to be tempted. There are times on when we are led into conflict and we know the purpose and sometimes we don't even know why we are being led into the battle. This is why, as I mentioned before, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, be sober and be vigilant because your adversary, the devil, walks about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. What's interesting about this narrative, it, it, it appears in Mark also, and Mark tells us that the Spirit drove him there. Uh, he's a little bit more emphatic. He describes uh, a passion and a sense of urgency that there, there are times we may feel an urgency or very passionate or very strong about something, and we may not know why. And this thing we feel so strongly about can be the source of a confrontation or a conflict. Uh, we know that something is off. We know that, uh, that, that something is wrong as we are pursuing of God. And there is some type of, of spiritual conflict as Jesus was driven by the enemy. Uh, Luke says that he was led into the desert. Uh, when, when, we read, when you read Luke, you feel like he is led there and the devil tempted him, tempted him as a result of him being there. And yet Mark gives us a little bit more insight and tells us that he was 
driven there, that there was a passion, that there was uh, some emotion uh, attached to it. Each one of the uh, gospel writers has his unique perspective on this event. All of the synoptic gospels, Mark, Luke, and Matthew, give us an important outlook so that we can have a more panoramic view of this event. Uh, this lets us know that there are different reasons for our temptations. And then, you know, when the enemy tempts us, he tempts us to make us fall. And when God tests us, he tests our faith to, so that we can grow and bear fruit. And so there are different reasons for why we are tempted. And sometimes it can be the enemy trying to sabotage us. And there are times where it is God allowing our faith to be tested so that we can grow and learn to rely more on him. Let's dive deeper into the text and look at what it says there in verse 2. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. Now when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. It's interesting that the enemy says to him, if you are the son of God. He questions his own existence. He questions his, uh, who he is as God himself. Now, I have to pause here and say, because I'm a preacher and I always preach the gospel and I share the word of God. Um, the Bible says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. We're, most of us are familiar with that verse. But the next few verses say, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already. And so we understand that Jesus' mission was to die on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. And to be buried and placed in a tomb and, and raise again from the dead, rise again from the dead to authenticate the claim that he was indeed the Son of God. If Jesus would have stayed in the tomb, we would not be here today. But because he said that he would rise again, and he did, we can believe that, we can, that his death on the cross is trustworthy, is worthy of our faith. We can believe that if we believe, if we place our faith in the sacrifice that Jesus made, and we believe in our hearts that God rose him from the dead, and we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus that we shall be saved. When we believe that, we have eternal life. When we believe that, we repent of our sins and we turn in faith toward God. I have to ask you this morning, have you repented of your sins and turned in faith toward Christ? And this is, this, this is the issue here uh, with Satan. If you are the son of God, and, and that may be a question that you are asking yourself today. Is Jesus the son of God? And it's a question 
that God can answer for you and his word can answer for you. And you can easily search out. Here we see that Jesus is being tempted uh, by his physical needs, the lust of the flesh. This is the first category. He was hungry. Food is a very real physical need. This temptation was a direct assault on his physical needs. Well, one of the things that I recognize about me is that uh, when I am underslept, and usually when I have to preach, I can't sleep the night before. And then, again, that's another coincidence. And so, <laughs> just so happens. I, took, I stayed with the baby last night. My wife, she said, why don't you go to bed early? I said, I never sleep the night before I have to preach. I just, just you know, just, just never sleep. And so one of the things that I know about me is that uh, if I am underslept and I have not had two cups of coffee because I'm a coffee addict and I will admit it, I'm sinful, pray for me. I said, <laughs> I, I, use, I, I can very easily respond in the flesh and have an attitude. My family knows not to try to engage me in a conversation early in the morning. It is a dangerous thing to try to engage me in a theological conversation before I have had two full cups of coffee and at least five and a half to six hours worth of sleep. Right, 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 right. <laughs> and daddy, do this and do this. No, don't ask me nothing. I am liable to respond in the flesh. And so... Um, and so, but see, but I know this about me. I know my we, and I will tell you, and, and my family knows that I'll repent of these things when I, but, but it's something that I know. And so I, I walk circumspectly as the word of God says, <laughs> headed for the coffee machine. <laughs> Would Jesus place his physical needs above his love for God? Jesus has been led to spend a season in the desert. No doubt he was praying and meditating upon the word of God. It is obvious by his responses uh, to every temptation with, it is written. By the way, all of the responses that Jesus gave are found in Deuteronomy chapters 6, 6 through 8. The enemy will often attack us through our physical needs. You see, the, uh, the enemy came to attack Elijah uh, after he had done this great battle with the prophets of Baal and they had made this great sacrifice and he had killed 400 plus prophets and he was exhausted. And then Jezebel says, listen, I am going to kill you. And he immediately he goes into a depression and says, God, why don't you just kill me? Why don't you just get it over? See, because the enemy often comes to us when we are at our weakest. See, he doesn't wait until you're prayed up, until you've uh, been, until you've read your word, and you're just feeling like you can take the world by by its horns and conquer the world. It's when you're underslept. It's when you haven't prayed. It's when you haven't been on your word in your word. It's when you're irritated uh, or, or you, are, you are having the cold ward where, with your wife or you guys haven't spoken to each other for a day. And you already have things going on that he comes to attack. He, he attacks our physical needs. He attacks us when we are at our weakest. But Jesus said something really interesting. He said, uh, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word 
of God. And um, the word word there is the word rhema, by, and, and meaning that we, need, we must have the word of God inside of us so that we're able to recall the word of God when the enemy comes to tempt us and when we are faced with some challenge. There has to be the word of God. Your word I have hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. There, it has to be in there so that we're able to recall it within a moment and be able to resist God. Submit yourself, therefore, unto God. Resist the devil, and he will flee. The lust of the flesh. What is the flesh? It is our humanity. It is our human nature. It is our uh, propensity toward a certain thing. In Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 21, it gives us a list of 17 different works of the flesh. Would you hand me that, that Bible right there, babe? And, and my, you were listening deep or you, you, you didn't fall asleep on me. Can I have my glasses too? No, I'm, this is my wife. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm supposed to be preaching. I want to read these to you so that we'll understand the, the, the difference between uh, the responses that our flesh gives or, or the responses that uh, are inherent within our human nature, our fallen nature, our sinful nature, and, and, the, and the enemy. In Galatians chapter 5, beginning at verse 17, it says this. For the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. These two are contrary to one another. That you would not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are deep. these. Adultery, fornication, uncleanliness, lewdness, idolatry. Sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envies, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in the past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So these are the, the responses. These are the attitudes. This, this, this is the way our human, sinful, fallen nature is prone to respond. There are times that the enemy can tempt us to react in our flesh. However, most of the times, it's our spiritual immaturity. There are times when the enemy can tempt us to react in one of these ways. But many times what we say is, the devil made me do it. Instead of saying, I am just spiritually immature. I, am, I have not really grown in my faith. This is not really an area where I have allowed the Holy Spirit to help me grow and blossom and develop fruit. I am carnal. I am more guided by my human nature or by my flesh rather than by the spirit. 
1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27, uh, Paul says, I, I beat my flesh and keep it under. He uses this terminology. He's, I discipline my body and keep it under because he recognizes that he himself is prone to do something that in his flesh that he would not want to do. He says this, lest I having preached to others might find myself being disqualified from the race. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11 tells us to abstain from fleshly desires. Romans chapter 13, uh, verse 14 says, put on the Lord and make no provisions for the flesh. Galatians tells us to walk in the spirit. In other words, purpose in our hearts that we are going to walk in the spirit and follow the Lord and, and, and set our hearts and our minds almost as we set a thermostat to control the temperature that we're going to follow the word. If you walk in the spirit, it says you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. And so we see here that Jesus' first temptation was against the flesh, the lust of the flesh. Let's continue reading there in verse number five. Then the devil took him up in the holy city and set him on a pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, again, throw yourself down for it is written. So now he's quoting scripture to him. He shall give his angels charge over you and in their hands they shall bear you up lest you dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, it is written again, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Satan is trying to get Jesus to say to his father, Father, prove yourself. Satan wants Jesus to test God and in the process prove himself to Satan. Jesus responds with Deuteronomy 16, 16. He said, he's saying, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. The problem with trying to prove ourselves or to put God to the test is that this comes from a place of doubt and disbelief. Anytime we are trying to test God or prove God, we have to understand that that comes from a place of disbelief or unbelief in his word. It comes from a place of uh, disbelief in his promises and in his nature and the, the character of God. When we allow unbelief to drive our, our hearts and to, to saturate our thoughts, we become ineffective. We become impotent. Oh, you remember when uh, the disciples tried to cast out a demon out of an epileptic boy? And, and they said to Jesus, why couldn't we cast them out? Jesus said to them, because of your unbelief. You see, because unbelief makes us spiritually ineffective. One of the things that I, I, I want to ask you today, and this is a hypothetical question, do you compartmentalize your unbelief? Let me elaborate. Uh, some of you may have great faith to believe God to do something in someone else's life. But do you have faith that God can change your spouse? Some of you may believe that God can bless you 
financially. But do you believe that he can change the difficult boss that, that you work for? Some of you believe that uh, God can, can bless you and, and help you grow spiritually. But not that he can change a situation or a circumstance. We, we tend to be uh, selective about where we have faith. We tend to compartmentalize our areas of faith and unbelief. This is why the Bible says that the just shall live by faith. It repeats this in Habakkuk and Romans and in Hebrews. Three times God says the just shall live by faith. Unbelief not only makes us impotent, but unbelief ultimately uh, will corrode our hearts and cause us to separate from God. In the book of Hebrews, it says, being careful, and lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Unbelief is like a seed, a little leaven that leavens the whole lump. And so whatever area today I want to encourage you that you may have unbelief in, to trust God. I, I, um, I was uh, heading into a uh, counseling session a few weeks ago, and it was a very difficult case, and I, I won't get into the details of it. Um, and I was just very, very concerned about how one of the spouses would, would respond, and I was working myself up and asking for prayer. And at, at some point in the day, I said, wait a minute. Why, here's a noble thought, why, just, why not just have faith that God's going to work it out? Why just not have faith that they're going to respond in a godly way? Why just not have faith that God is going to lead me to the right scripture? Yes, yes. After I said that thought, of, I, I was good. The, the session went wonderful. I, I left there in unbelief. <laughs> I said, wow, I can't believe that just happened. <laughs> It was incredible. But after it, because I'm a slow processor, I I had to uh, make account of how much unbelief I had allowed to seep into my own life. And it's not because I don't trust God. It's not because I don't believe God. It's because... I am good at what I do, and I start trusting more in my abilities than I do in the Word of God. And so, see, we have to be careful when we become proficient at what we do. I remember a preacher being asked, and this man, he had been in the ministry for over 50 years, and he was being asked by someone who was interviewing him, he was asked, what is the most dangerous thing that you consider in the ministry. And the guy without an eye about it says, when you learn how to do it. When we become professionals and when we start relying on God and we start looking to his word and when we have that childlike faith, when we stop being like little children who depend on God, we are in a dangerous place. Because Jeremiah says, cursed is the man who trusts in flesh and makes flesh his helping arm. That's right, that's right. 
And so we see here that um, Jesus' temptation here is uh, the pride of life, he, uh, that he's trying to get him to prove himself. And when we have the need to tempt God, what we're really saying is that we don't trust God. And, and testing God comes from a place of mistrust in him. And, and the pride of life will also cause us to want to prove, want to prove ourselves to others. We try to prove that we have arrived. We buy things we can't afford. Or we swing all the way over to the other side. We get rid of everything that would say anything that we have, anything, and we try to, be, try to walk in false humility. Oh, I am so poor. I've just given everything away from the Lord, and I just live in my car, and I'm just so dust. <laughs> And, 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 and I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with buying things or anything wrong of if God is leading you to give everything away for his cause. I'm saying that the motivation, and sometimes we are trying to prove to people that we are something that we are not. Sometimes we try to prove to people that we are right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We try to prove to people that we won't take mess from anybody. We try to prove to people that I am not this or I am not that. The pride of life will cause us to keep an argument going that we know we need to give up. See, one of the reasons that I give up arguing is that you can ask my wife, I never lose an argument. I never lose. And what I mean is this. When I am wrong, I'll just say that I'm wrong. Because the Bible says this in Colossians chapter 3, verse 3. For you are dead and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And last time I checked, dead man can't be wrong or right. And so I don't have anything to lose. So I never lose. <laughs> and when I'm right, he will exhibit my righteousness as a noonday. I just let God deal with it. Because right, right, right. he always leads me to victory in Christ Jesus. Mm -hmm. And so I never lose. I was counseling someone the other day, and the, and, and the spouse, uh, he, he was using, he was angry uh, with, his, with his wife, and, and he, uh, he kept using these outbursts of anger. And I asked him, I said, why are you getting so angry with your wife? He says, well, uh, I'm afraid. I said, you know, are you using this as a defense? Are you trying to protect yourself? He said, well, yes. I'm, so I asked him. What are you trying to protect yourself from? Sometimes we keep arguments going and we keep fights going when we're trying to protect a dead man. You are trying to protect a dead man for you are dead. Paul said, I die daily and said, no, no something 
That the moment you keep the fight going, you are trying to resurrect the very one that Jesus is trying to kill. I'm sorry, I'm going to have to go to the seat and give myself an amen on that one. I am sorry. The moment you choose to keep the argument going, you are trying to resurrect the very same one that Jesus said is dead. Yes, yes, yes. What are you trying to protect? Who are you trying to defend? Is your opinion or your position or your thought process or your philosophy of life actually more important than the person whom you are in the argument with? Do we really exalt what we think and we believe above what Rabbi Zacharias calls the supreme ethic, love? I think I should, I, I'm going to keep reading my notes here. <laughs> James chapter 4 verses 1 and 2 says, Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure? That war in your members. You have a desire to please yourself rather than to please God. Proverbs chapter 13 verse 10. And it's only in the King James that it reads it like this. It says, only by pride comes strife. And so here in James, James tells us that it's our desire for pleasure, And one of those desires can be the desires to prove ourselves. Oh, I'm going to prove to you that I'm right. I'm going to prove to you that you are wrong. I'm going to prove to you that I'm smarter than you. I'm going to prove to you. And so anytime we are proving ourselves, trying to prove ourselves, make a point, it is the pride of life. What will they say? How do they view me? Or the way I want them to view me. Instead of, how does God view me in this moment? What does God think about this conversation that we're having? This argument that is going on. Have you noticed something, and I want to speak directly to, to spouses, have you noticed something about arguments that go unresolved that uh, even though you might have had them three months ago when you start arguing, you pick up right where you left off? It's like you've been having the same argument for like 10 years. Aren't you exhausted? I get tired just saying that. Listen, I... I have no problem saying, you're right. You're right. I'm wrong. I don't care about being right. I care about loving my wife as Christ loved the church. Because guess what? I trust that God, if I am right, will reveal it to her. That she'll fall upon some scripture or some preacher or some woman's Bible study. And she'll roll back and, you know, honey, about that thing that you were... Now you got to remember I never lose. <laughs> preach, preach. 
somewhere in the middle of this, I was trying to preach a sermon. And so, <laughs> let's read the last few verses and then we'll close. And again, the devil took him on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the, the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And the devil left him and behold, the angels came and ministered to him. So verses 8 through 11 showed us the temptation of the lust of the eyes. He showed him the kingdoms of his world, of the world. He showed him, he, he saw uh, all the kingdoms of this world. And Satan saying, listen, I will give you all of this. Um, and so Jesus replies by saying, you shall worship the Lord your God. And so oftentimes... What we see, the things that we see, can distract us from our devotion and our worship to God. And, and listen, there are, uh, we live in a culture, we live in a day and age where there is certainly a lot to see. There's a lot of beautiful things and there's a lot of very ugly things in this world. But I think the important thing is that um, we keep our eyes on the Lord, that we enjoy the beautiful things that God has allowed us to see um, in godliness, and we keep our focus. Uh, Peter says that we are to sanctify the Lord in our hearts. It's about guarding our eyes and keeping our eyes away from things that we do not need to watch. In Psalm 101, verse 3, the Bible says, uh, David said, I will set no wicked thing before my eyes. It's about guarding our eyes. Uh, uh, Lot was influenced by what he saw. The Bible, Bible says that he lifted up his eyes and he saw the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. He allowed what he saw and how beautiful Sodom and Gomorrah looked to cause him to live in a town based on what he saw. Proverbs chapter 27 verse 20 says, the eyes are never satisfied. Ecclesiastes chapter 1 verse 8 says the eye. The eyes are never satisfied by seeing. I'm going to pick on my grandchildren because my daughter is here, so I need to include them in there so she'll remember the certain because if not, she'll fall asleep on me. Anyway, <laughs> um, and, and you, you didn't know I was going to pick on you. But my grandchildren and my, and my, and my, little, and my little one too, uh, they really exemplify the lust of the eyes. They will be playing with toys. And they will grab the toys. We have a big toy bin. And so they'll grab the toys and they'll set them all around them. And then they will look over at the other grandchildren and say, I want that toy. <laughs> and so when the other grandchildren try to grab one of the toys, that I says, no, I want yours and mine. Because the eyes are never satisfied. If you, are, if you ever question the fact that people are born into sin, watch children play. So 
My granddaughter, specifically Lorelai, she wants to grab all the toys and she wants to put them all up on the sofa and then she takes her, and God forbid one of the boys take her any of her toys. She will throw a fit. She says, Mama, Mama, she's taking my toys while she is trying to get theirs because the eyes are never satisfied. Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 and 28, Jesus said this, whoever looks at a woman to lust after her in his heart has already committed adultery. It speaks about the fact that uh, we need to protect our eyes and we don't need to look lustfully. Mm-hmm. In the book of Lamentations, uh, chapter 3, verse 51, the Bible says, and this is again in the, only in the old King James, it says it this way, mine eyes have affected my heart. I'm going to close by telling you a story. My, my, my wife, my beautiful wife was here. Now, yes, I'm picking on you. And we have this tradition when we go through the drive-thru. As we are approaching the fast food restaurant, I will lovingly look over to my wife and say, do you want anything? I will pay for it. I will buy you whatever you want on the menu, number two, three, five, six, all of them. No. Are you sure? So we get to the window. Again, I will look at her and say, are you sure you don't want anything? No. See, y'all do this too. This is why you're laughing. I will go and order my burger, which I am very picky, and she knows I get mine custom made. No pickle, extra mayonnaise, extra onion, because I want you to make it hot. I want you to make it work. I am the guy that goes back and said, you put pickles on my burger. (laughs) And so as we are driving off and I unwrap my burger, because I eat and drive, it is not illegal. (laughs) She says, can I have a bite? No! In my mind, I had a vision of eating the entire burger. Not the burger minus a bite. I asked you several times in the process of purchasing this beautiful, crafted, custom-made burger if you wanted anything. To which you responded, guys, And so now I'm getting in the flesh. Because of a bite of burger. And so the eyes are never satisfied. See, she didn't want anything, but when she saw my beautiful burger and how juicy it was, Eve, (laughs) and the sauce dripping, Something inside of her sin nature stirred. And she says, can I have a bite? I know. Of your burger. And then she takes me back to our counseling sessions and to when we first got into the marriage. She says, I thought everything in the marriage was community property.
At this point, I have to remind myself, you have died. <laughs> Here you go, honey. Because I've already been doing this long enough that I, my vision, I have had to adjust my vision to a burger minus a bite. Yeah. Or two. And so I don't allow that to frustrate me anymore. But I wanted to set some of you free. <laughs> because I feel you. I feel your pain. I have been with you in the trenches. And so I'm here to tell you, let it go. You have nothing to lose. Dead man, don't lose. Give her the bite. It's the lust of the eyes at work. And if you're going to love your wife as Christ loved the church, you have to cover her sin. Die to self and give her the burger. Because you might actually wind up literally dying <laughs> before you get to the house. <laughs> My wife is very, very nice. She, 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 she won't make a fuss about it, but I, I can't account for everybody's wife. Some of your wives carry concealed weapons. Now, you might die over a whopper, man. It's not worth it. Just love Jesus and love your wife. It's the lust of the eyes. The eyes are never satisfied, and so we need to keep our eyes on the Lord. In conclusion, we want to be aware of spiritual warfare, but we don't want to be paranoid. And, uh, we want to be vigilant and take up the weapons of our warfare because the Bible says that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty through God to, to the pulling down of, of strongholds. And be aware of these three areas that Jesus was tempted in, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. Can we pray? Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to share your word. Lord, thank you because um, your word convicts us, your word encourages us, your word inspires us and motivates us. And at the same time, Lord, we can rejoice and laugh in your house at how your truth works in our lives and how we recognize our own frailties and our own humanity. So I pray today that uh, you would remind us, Lord, to be sober and to be vigilant. That you would remind us, Lord, that, um, that if you are for us, who can be against us? Amen. That you would remind us, Lord, that greater is he that is in us yes, yes. than he that is in the world. Yes. And that you would remind us, Lord, that we have victory Amen. as long as we are in you. Amen. As long as we are submitted to you. As long as we dwell in the secret place of the Most High yes. and abide under the shadow of the Almighty. Yes. Bless your people today. Strengthen them and anoint them and raise them up to be the people you've called us to be. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.